You're listening to audio from Redwood Baptist Church. If you need any more information about us, go to www.weareredwood.org. We pray that the message that you're about to listen to will strengthen you, encourage you, and make you more like Jesus. Blessings. Thank you, Mike. Take your Bibles, please. Turn to Mark chapter number 8. Mark chapter 8. For those of you that have children, fifth grade and below, there will be children's church next Sunday, right after the worship. So right at this time, they would get up and uh, head over to um, Kids Church. And it's uh, good to have Mike and uh, Jess back, and I'm thankful for, uh, thankful for them. Last night, I was thinking about one of our, uh, one of our charter members, and uh, her name is Casey Kinch. Now, of course, she's been, uh, for several years now, uh, home in heaven, uh, but I was just kind of looking over this charter members uh, list here this morning, and uh, Ron Bowman is here also uh, in the back there. And But uh, Casey used to always pray for rain, and uh, so I'd, I'd like for you all to pray for some rain. And maybe maybe after this week, because this week's beautiful, right? 73, 74, 75. So start uh, start start next week. But she would always she would always pray for rain, and so I'd encourage you to um, to to pray for that. But I was just remembering her. I was reminded of her last night, and then again this morning, picking up the donuts. That uh, I was reminded of her uh, with the gentleman at the donut shop. Was uh, I was commenting on the beautiful weather, and he said we need. Rain, and so instantly I thought of, I thought of KC again, and uh, thankful for heaven, and uh, we will be celebrating the life of Carol Lee uh, here in a few weeks. We do appreciate your patience uh, with that. There were just several uh, things that they needed to get done on the family side of things, and we were able to uh, help them. Uh, be able to get uh, her ashes uh, to be able part of the part part of the ceremony, and so we are uh, we are looking forward to that memorial and uh, honoring her life. I want you to look at the very uh, last verse of chapter eight. We made a somewhat passing reference to it last Sunday at the conclusion of the message, but I want to go back to that verse and because I think it jumps out of the text out out at the text. Uh, It certainly has a context around it that we have spent a couple weeks in, but it really does stand alone as one that demands our attention. So let's begin reading in verse number 35. Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And so I've been enjoying our series that we've entitled Jesus, and this morning I have entitled the message, What Are You Ashamed Of? What are you ashamed of? Let's ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, we come before you and uh, we're thankful for, uh, Lord, the very word of God and thankful for each person that is here. And uh, God, I just ask that you would uh, bless our time in the word I pray that, Lord, we would, that we wouldn't just take this message, that we wouldn't take maybe even the delivery style or the content of it, which is different than maybe some of what Mark has been, and we would just write it off as something that we don't need. But instead, that, Lord, you would allow us to, um, to learn from it and to speak to our heart. 
And God, we'll give you the glory for what you will do in our midst. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The operative word that I want you to notice is the form of the word shame, which is ashamed. So shame, is, it's, a very, it's a very useful reality. Shame is not only useful, it is critical. Because no one comes to salvation who has not come to the point of being ashamed of their sin and of themselves. That is actually what lies behind repentance. It is the feeling that guilt produces and the evidence of remorse over one sin. Now everybody this morning, I believe, understands the word shame. We understand the implications of it. It is essential for anybody in this world who's ever going to enter into the kingdom of God and spend eternity in heaven for them to experience a profound, devastating kind of personal shame. Now I know there have been many, many, many through the years who have preached the gospel as if there is nothing but an invitation to prosperity. And it's that kind of life. And they do so without a regard to what a person really is. But true salvation and true evangelism focuses in on the, 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 the loss and the sinner's shame. There are at least two categories in which the sinner needs to recognize this shame. We will start off this morning by saying, ashamed of one's immorality. Meaning, to be ashamed of those things that are flagrant and open sins. But you know, that is something that the sinner fights against. That's something that no one necessarily wants to experience. And that is why we would often say that people act with a conduct and they act shamelessly. It is safe to say that there have been cultures in the history of our world that have done everything they can to eliminate shame. But maybe none have been any more successful than the culture in which you and I are living in today. I want you to just think about it for a moment. What kind of behavior in our society still heaps shame on people? Maybe child abuse? Uh, maybe, uh, you know, rape or murder of somebody, maybe the, the, the horrific problem of sex trafficking or mass murderers and school shootings. But outside of some horrendous kind of crime, this is virtually a shameless culture. No one's ashamed of sexual sin. We're not ashamed of heterosexual fornication. And every imaginable kind. Not ashamed of the pornography industry or the consumption of it. Not ashamed of homosexuality. Not ashamed of the overt pride, self-promotion, self-will. We're not ashamed of greed. We're not ashamed of the covetousness. Not ashamed of the lust of the flesh or the lust of the eyes or, as Jesus put it, the pride of life. You and I live in what is deemed as a shameless culture. And so how do you get sinners in this culture to feel shame for anything that is short of crimes that are against children and those things that I mentioned? 
the average person in our culture will not feel ashamed of whatever it is that person chooses to do. And this cuts people off of the hope of salvation because they have no shame. In fact, if you look into some of Paul's writings in Philippians 3, verse 18, it says, for many walk. That that means that the conduct of their life. So, for many, the conduct of their life, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, why would someone be the enemy of the cross of Christ? I mean, why would, why would somebody, any, anybody be the enemy of Christ, the Savior, the Redeemer, and the lover of men's souls, the one who offers eternal life and joy and peace and blessing? Well, we read in verse number 19, it says, Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. So they set their minds on earthly things. They, they live to satisfy their lust. That's kind of what he means there. Whose God is their, their, their belly. Just the desires of whatever they want they're going to have. And they glory or they boast in their shame. What they ought to be ashamed of, they actually boast about. What should cause someone to shudder, they are now celebrating and saying, hey, there is no shame. You know a culture is in a severe condition when it boasts about what it ought to be ashamed of. But there's another kind of shame. Not only the irreligious, the immoral, the open, flagrant, perverted, corrupt kind of behavior that I've spent the last few moments describing, but we also see religious shame. And this shame is even harder to provoke in somebody. I mean, we do live in a society where people just really don't feel shame about anything yet, but this one, this one's even worse. This one's even harder to bring about in someone's mind and in someone's life. And the bottom line is that anybody that is engaged in any false religion should be ashamed. Not of their immorality, but of their self-righteousness. Or maybe, can I put it this way, their attempts at self-righteousness. Any sinner who feels that they can earn his way into heaven ought to be ashamed of such a thought. Anybody that is assuming that that they could please an infinite holy God ought to be ashamed of himself in thinking that he is good enough to achieve a right relationship with God by doing good. Religion, hear me, religion says that that God and whatever you want to put in there as God, that He will receive you if you are good enough and you do good enough deeds. Whether it's Joseph Smith, Allah, Buddha, or so on, people are deep into that kind of religion. And by the way, they're not ashamed of that religion. That was precisely the case in Israel. They were up to their ears, so to speak, in false religion. They talked about the true God, but they had reshaped him into a false representation of the true God. Do you remember the book of Exodus? You remember when Moses, they, they went up to the top of the top of the mountain there, and they, what they do? They turned God into a golden calf. 
And they began to worship him. They, they, they used the same name, but they created an idol. And Israel had done the same in Jesus' day. They said that they were worshiping Yahweh. They said that they were worshiping the true living God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. But the fact was that they had invented a God with the same name, but it was another God. This is nothing new. They had falsified the true God, and they had worshipped false gods all the way through Israel's history. I'm sure that the land of Israel, there were plenty of immoral and not ashamed people. No doubt there were. But what Jesus is really trying to teach here is the moral that are unashamed. That's what he was driving home here. There were people who were irreligious. They were unsynagogued. They were the tax collectors. They were the prostitutes. They were the thieves. They were the ones that Jesus could teach and reach. The immoral were the ones that often Jesus would have been found in their company. It was easier to get to those who would be ashamed of their immoral behavior than it was to get to those who needed to be ashamed of their moral and religious behavior. Jesus identifies the nation of Israel with this phrase, this adulterous and sinful generation. Listen, every Jew that would have heard those words of Jesus would have known exactly what he was saying in reference Is he saying that adultery was rampant in Israel? Is he saying that it is an overt, open, wicked culture? No, not necessarily. Because that wasn't necessarily the case. They all went to the temple. They adhered to all of the ceremonies. They endeavored to follow the law. They had synagogues in every one of the little cities and the scribes and the Pharisees. They would ensure that this um, pharisaical, judicious, um, self-righteous law was being performed. They were very religious. Hear me. On the surface. And they should have been ashamed about the condition of their hearts. The covering up of the superficial morality. They should have been ashamed about the fact that they were so deceived and deluded that they thought that they could earn their way into the acceptance of a holy, perfect God. For those of you that were in our 10 o'clock study, you can see how God beautifully dovetailed these messages to go together so many months ago, really. There are two ways to be deceived about the fact that you should be ashamed. Irreligious, And immoral people should be ashamed of their sinful and open conduct. And religious and superficially moral people should be ashamed of their hypocrisy. And that is the issue here. The fact that Jesus got a better response out of sinners and the tax collectors, that is why he said to the Pharisees, after having a meal and having a house full of what people would call the outcasts, the sinners of the sinners, the you know those the, those wretched people. Here's what Jesus said to them in Luke 5:32: "I come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." See now, sinners in general, they're very good at 
self-deception. We're very good at that. But it seems that the one that should know better, the one that has maybe kind of grown up in church or maybe has heard the Word of God over and over again, they ought to know better. They tend to turn a blind eye to their reality. And that's exactly the issue here. Who is this adulterous and sinful generation? It's Israel at the time of our Lord. Is it because they're this outwardly physical immoral? No. It's because they're spiritually immoral. It's because they're spiritually adulterous. What do I I mean by that? Spiritually adulterous? Well, they've defected from their true God. All throughout the Old Testament, God identifies himself as the husband and Israel as his wife. And he accuses Israel of adultery by going after false images of who he is and other gods. This language, again, would have been very, would have been very shaking to those that would have heard Jesus early on here. Isaiah 57, verse 3, But draw near hither, ye sons of sorceress, the seed of the adulterer and the whore. This is God's indictment on the nation of Israel and its leaders for, sp- for spiritual adultery. They should have been faithful to their true husband, which is God. I want you to stick with me here this morning. This message is a little bit different. It's a little bit, it's a little bit heavier, but I, I really want you to stick with me. What happened was is they had prostituted themselves to false gods, to idols. And it goes on to talk about that in, in, throughout this text, and, and he describes them as openly mocking God, like at verse 4, against whom do ye sport yourselves? Against whom make ye a wide mouth and draw out the tongue? Are ye not children of transgression, a seed of falsehood? And then he continues down. He talks about how they make all kinds of offerings and sacrifices, uh, you know, of grain and drink offerings and so forth. They even sacrifice to their false gods, verse number eight, behind the doors also and the posts hast thou set up thy remembrance. For thou hast discovered thyself to another than me, and art gone up. Thou hast enlarged thy bed and made thee a covenant with them. Thou lovest their bed when thou sawest it. This is a graphic description of their spiritual adultery. We see the physical adultery, the imagery of it. But God is referencing their spiritual adultery. You've literally engaged with false gods, he's telling his people. He's saying, you've, and not only have you engaged in false gods, you've made it pleasurable. Verse 13, when thou criest, let thy companies deliver thee, but the wind shall carry them all the way. In other words, when the wrath comes down, I skip some verses, when the wrath comes down, hey, you cry out to your idols, and they're not going to be able to do anything for you. They're just going to be carried away with the wind. So this is the description of spiritual adultery. This is very vivid. It's very graphic. We see something similar in Ezekiel 16. Again, something that the Jews would have, they, they would have understand when Jesus said this adulterous and sinful generation. Ezekiel 16, verse 30. How weak is thine heart, saith the Lord God, seeing that thou doest all these things, the work of an imperish whorish woman, 
and that thou buildest thine intimate place in the head of every way and makest thine high places in every street and hast not been as an harlot in that thou scornest higher. But as a wife that committeth adultery, which it taketh strangers instead of her husband. Harsh punishment is mentioned again for this type of spiritual adultery. Verse 35, Wherefore, O O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, because thy filthiness was poured out and thy nakedness discovered through thy whoredoms with thy lovers and with all the idols of thy abominations and by the blood of thy children, which thou didst give unto them. They literally sacrificed their children to Molech. You can study it. They literally would put their babies into this, the kind of these arms, just fire these false gods. And if you were to continue on down, God brings judgment onto his people. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Hosea, another picture of this, of this whoredom. So when our Lord says that this is an adulterous and sinful generation, he is, he's talking about Israel. Israel acting in his day the same way that they had acted in the past. Now, were there like massive idols in the land of Jesus' day? Not really, because those had often been cleansed since they had come out of captivity. However, listen to me, they had created one great idol. And it was the false representation of the true God. That is equally blasphemous. God identifies blasphemy as a worship of any other God or worship of his name, but in a perverted form. And that is exactly what Israel was guilty of. This was an idolatrous generation. They were very religious. And they refused to be ashamed of themselves. They refused to be ashamed of the fact that they were twisting the Old Testament. They refused to be ashamed of the misrepresentation of the true and living God. They refused to be ashamed of their secret sins, of, of the inner man. They, were, they, they, they looked great on the outside. They were ashamed. They were not ashamed of their hypocrisy. And since they refused to be ashamed of themselves, they turned and were ashamed of Jesus. That's what the text says in verse 38. Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the only people who will ever be saved are the people who are ashamed of their sin, who acknowledge that sin, who humble themselves with that reality. That's what it says in the Sermon on the Mount, the very sermon that you would read in the New Testament. It says that that Jesus would say, hey, blessed are the pure, poor in spirit, those that are spiritually bankrupt, who are meek and who are broken, who are thirsting after righteousness. They know that they're spiritually bankrupt apart from Jesus Christ. They know that they have nothing that can be commended of themselves apart from Jesus Christ. They weep over their condition. They're broken over that. They hunger for righteousness. They know that they do not possess within themselves. See, all human beings have plenty to be ashamed of, whether it's the religious or the irreligious. The irreligious are just 
overtly, openly sinful, and the religious are just covertly sinful. White as sepulchers, as Jesus said, full of dead men's bones. Now it comes down to this. The only people who will ever trust Christ as their Savior and go on to, and, 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 and have a home in heaven are those who have come to the realization that they are nothing without Christ. And when you come to that conclusion and you realize that Christ is everything, that Jesus, who is our life, then you and I will never be ashamed of Jesus. But if you're not going to be ashamed in or, or of the reality of our sin, then you will be ashamed of Jesus because you're going to reject his message. Because Jesus' message says, for we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Praise God for that. But if you and I will not be honest about ourselves, then you and I will ultimately become ashamed of Jesus because his message goes against the self-righteous. His message goes against the, I'm going to build myself up so somehow I can attain this pleasure of the deity in heaven that you're so after. Salvation comes to those who are humble. I want you to listen to this parable that Jesus teaches in Luke 18. Two men went up into the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee and the other a publican. Okay, publicans, nasty people in the, in the, in the mind of people. All right, just the, the, the debauchery, so to speak. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers. <laughs> it's funny because he's talking about physically. Adulterers or even, or even this... Or even this publican. He's totally separated himself from this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not even lift up so much his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. What? A sinner. You see that acknowledgement there? You see that, 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 that honesty before God, that, that, that humility? And Jesus goes on to say in verse 14, I tell you, this man, the publican, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbled himself shall be exalted. Listen, this is the person who feels um, humble, that feel, acknowledges their, their, their guilt, who faces the inevitability of just judgment of eternal death. This is the person that is willing to lose his life to save it and not to make bad bargains by gaining the whole world and losing his soul. Didn't we read that earlier in this chapter? It's all connected here. We just kind of went over this verse really quick last week and I felt the Lord kind of saying, hey, no, 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 I want you to hone in on this verse. But you and I, listen, we have a choice. You were either ashamed of your sin or you're ashamed of Christ. That ought to be a simple choice, right? You and I, we have everything to be ashamed of, so to speak, if we, if we look in on our record. For those of you that are saved, listen, you, you, it's coming, all right? But you, you, you look in on that sin, and it's like, man, this, this is horrible. But there's nothing in Christ. 
to be ashamed of. So what are you ashamed of? Are you ashamed of perfect holiness, perfect righteousness, perfect virtue, perfect goodness, perfect knowledge, wisdom, compassion, love, mercy, tenderness, power, justice, generosity, all the beautiful things of who Jesus is. And so what are we ashamed of? What is there about Christ to be ashamed of? You and I, we ought to be like the Apostle Paul when he said in Galatians 4, 6, 14, but God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, if you are ashamed of Christ, you have gotten it completely backwards because he deserves all honor, he deserves all glory, all praise, and we don't. But I want you to allow these next few verses to absolutely amaze you. Hebrews 2.11 For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. You know what Jesus says? Jesus said, I'm not ashamed to call you brother. Right? When you become a child of God you become a joint heir with who? Christ. And Jesus is like, I'm not, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed to call you my brother. I'm not, a, I'm not ashamed to, 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 to share all of, the, all of the riches, all of this inheritance that you and I get as a believer in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 11, verse 16. But now they desire a better country. That is, and heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Listen, God's not ashamed to love and to redeem us. So why would we, we, we would be ashamed of the one who seeks to love and redeem us? This is the, fall, this is the, fall of, the folly of sin. This is the stupidity of sin. When you and I are thinking wrongly, when you and I are not emptying ourselves, like we talked about the last couple weeks ago, when we're not denying to ourselves, when it becomes all about us, man, listen, it's easy to be ashamed of who Jesus is in our world. It's easy to be ashamed of, of, of being a Christian in the culture in which we live where there seems to be no shame. And yet nothing in Christ, nothing should you and I ever be ashamed of if you know him as your Savior. And so unwilling to be humbled of yourself, when then indicted by Christ and his gospel, your shame turns on him and you reject him and then he will reject you. But for the believer, we can say with what the Apostle Paul said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek Philippians 1.20 says, According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. What are you ashamed of? Listen, if you're seated there this morning and you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, He's not ashamed of you. That life of Christ gets imputed to you. And you and I, we no longer live in shame in the sense of what our text Matthew or, or Mark 8 is talking about. See, what Mark chapter number 8 talks about is, like, hey, listen, if you are going to be ashamed of Jesus, that's the unregenerate 
then he is going to return and there's not he's going to be ashamed of us and he's going to return in all of his glory literally it literally gives an indication of the matter excuse me of revelation chapter number 20 when he's coming down with the father and with his holy angels listen to me the last vision that the world has of Christ will not be the one of him hanging on a cross that's not the last thing that they're going to see he's going to come again and in glory to establish his kingdom and then the whole world of unbelievers will be brought to a throne where they will see him in blazing glory. They will either see him with joy and love and glories of heaven is how you and I ought to be so excited to see him because he's not ashamed to be called our brother. He's not ashamed to to be our God. You and I, we're not ashamed of him. We boast only in the cross. Why? Because Jesus Christ took all of that shame. He took all of that sin. Hebrew, or Isaiah 53 talks about how he took all of that and he bore it on his own self, on the, in his body, on that tree. So you and I can now live our life unashamed of what he's done for us. See, if you and I, if we're walking out here, we're walking out of here as believers, ashamed of everything we've done, hear me, I have not done a good job this morning. You have missed the message. Because really, if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, you get his record. It gets imputed to you. And so in that righteousness, in his righteousness, you walk out here in the in, with your head held high that you are in Christ. But I preach this message for those that aren't in Christ and to let you know as a believer here this is the message that we will preach that apart from Jesus Christ there is absolutely no hope. Man, we live in a world that just says, hey, come as you are. God will just love you. No, you're going to have to come as you are, realizing that you are a sinner, bow down figuratively at the cross of Jesus Christ, and then you get up as a child of the King. And you get up as a joint heir with Jesus Christ. All the things that you know of Jesus, he was the fullness of the Godhead bodily, That now dwells within you. You have all wisdom within you. You have all strength in Jesus Christ. And it's not our righteousness that we stand in. It is His. But listen, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've never come to the realization that you are a sinner and that you are in desperate need of salvation, you say, Ryan, I've been in church for years. That's not what I asked. And that's not what I said. If you've never come to the realization that you are a broken sinner in need of drastic rescue in Christ, it doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how great you think you look. It doesn't matter the actions that you do. Because apart from Jesus Christ, all of that is what Jesus would have been saying is a adulterous and sinful generation. So if we don't become ashamed of our sin at some point in our life, we will ultimately be ashamed of Jesus because his message is, 
We need him. So if we don't come to that realization, we're going to ultimately be ashamed of him. And then when he returns in that blaze of glory, he will then be ashamed of us. That's what that text means. If you are seated there and you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, you never, ever have to be afraid again that God will ever be ashamed of you. Ryan, what happens if I sin this week? That sin was paid for. You'll never have to see the back of God's head ever again because Jesus took it all for you. And so either you're seated here this morning, either you're going to celebrate that, yes, or you're going to reject that. And if you reject that, you're actually ashamed of Jesus. And the day is going to come when that reckoning will happen. And my prayer is, is that you will celebrate that today. If you know Christ is your Savior, celebrate it in your heart. And if you don't, man, come to him in salvation and celebrate the amazing work of what Jesus Christ has done for you. Every head bowed, every eye closed.